For those of you who may not know me, I'm Bobby Robbins, and we are rapidly approaching the end of our Walking in Wisdom sermon series from Proverbs. Uh, after this morning, we'll have two more messages, and then uh, probably uh, some time in Romans, and then looking forward to Adam's time leading us through the book of Daniel, Lord willing. Um, go ahead and turn in your copies of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 30. We'll be looking at various texts this morning in the book of Proverbs. So this will be kind of our, our launching point for the first part of it. But talking and, and preaching this morning on pride and humility. And what typically comes to your mind when you think of pride? You know, our culture just spent a month celebrating the perverseness of all types of sexual sins and referring to it as Pride Month. Uh, so maybe that's still on the forefront of your mind. Um, maybe with elections coming up in about three and a half months, you, you can't help but think of the politician who, every time you see them on TV, they just seem to ooze arrogance. Uh, just seeps out of everything of them. Um, maybe, um, like me sometimes when I think of pride, I, I think of a quarterback, um, he who shall not be named, who after winning his third Super Bowl was asked, which Super Bowl ring is the best? To which this unnamed quarterback replied, the next one. And then he goes on to win four more. I'm not naming names. I don't want to call anybody out. But, but let me tell you about the most proudful person I know. This is a guy who will insert himself into almost any conversation that's going on around him, drop a little tidbit about it, even though, honestly, he doesn't really know much about what he's talking about. He's got enough information to make himself dangerous with it. Um, this is a guy who took out his cell phone and Googled a topic in front of his wife so he could prove that he was right and she was not right. Not wrong, just not right. I mean, who does stuff like that? I mean, who is foolish enough to be that prideful? This guy. True story, this guy. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, every time we look in the mirror, every morning we... We look at it and we say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest of them all? And since mirrors don't talk back, we naturally assume it's got to be me. No one's greater. Now, there's not enough time this morning to dig down deep into all the various ways pride is presented and mentioned in Scripture. Uh, pride is often uh, a gateway sin. Pride often, you see it leading to anger to bitterness, to jealousy. Uh, pride often manifests itself in our lives in ingratitude because pride never has enough. You always got to have more when it comes to pride. Um, pride demands that our preferences will be met above other people's because it's my preference, right? Uh, pride often also causes us to blame shift. You see it perfectly in the Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve saying, well, the woman that you gave me, God, I didn't do it. She, she made me do it. We don't have time to go through all of that this morning, but I hope we can look at a 30,000-foot view this morning of pride. Uh, maybe in homework this week, you can go through and look at other ways it's presented in Scripture and maybe even pops up in your life from time to time. But with God's help, it's my desire this morning that we all leave with a lot less of it than what we came in with. So let's start by killing pride by looking at a description of pride from Proverbs chapter 30. I'll pray and then we'll read our text. Gracious Father, thank you for your faithfulness to our lives. Thank you for your spirit that continues to convict of sin, continues to remind us of the words of Christ. So this morning, Spirit, I pray that your spirit, that as your word, Father, is preached, that you would convict hearts. I pray that your word would be made alive in the hearts of the hearers this morning. And that your glory would be sought above all things. In Christ's name, amen. So Proverbs 30, uh, verses 12 and 13 reads, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. So Pride is a sin that sometimes it's, it's a lot easier to recognize in other people's lives than it is to see in our own lives, and it's sometimes a little hard to define. Uh, one dictionary defines pride as a feeling of satisfaction derived from one own, one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated, or from qualities that are widely admired. Now that doesn't really sound all that bad, does it? I mean, there's something to be said about a, a taking satisfaction in a job well done, not doing it haphazardly. Uh, something to be said about uh, looking at an admirable person and the characteristics that make them that way and maybe modeling your life after them. Uh, as parents, we all have a certain amount of pride when our children make godly, wise choices. So if, if this was all there was to pride, I should just go ahead and pray and we could all go home. Or at least we could probably beat the Baptist to the restaurant today since they don't get out for another couple hours. But uh, when you read through the Old Testament, there's six root words uh, that the Hebrew writers use for pride with about a dozen different synonyms spaced across 200 verses. Again, not going to dig into all 200 verses, and everyone said amen. But I do want to look at a few of them so we can get a, uh, maybe have the Bible paint us a picture of what pride is. Uh, one of these Hebrew words uh, is used to uh, describe something or someone who rises up or swells. Uh, it's used in the uh, uh, book of Exodus when... Moses gave the song of deliverance about God's majesty, how it was ruling over everything. Uh, but listen to how Amos used it in Amos chapter 6 to condemn Israel's pride. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor 
the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that's in it. Now Israel's prosperity under the reign of King Jeroboam had led them to despise others. They, they, they saw their, their wealth, their economy as something to be proud of. And they treated others around them with contempt. Everyone was, you know, the, the people living in southern part of Judah. You know, they were the poor. They were the outcasts. We don't have to be kind to them. We can be, uh, you know, kind of snooty toward them because we have all the money. Um, they, they, they looked at their prosperity as uh, prideful and it caused them to not do justice, which is why God would say earlier that he would want justice to roll down or flow down like waters. Uh, God said that his, their pride was an abhorrence to them. He was repulsed by it. I mean, think about the God of the creation who almost, you know what repulsions mean, right? You hold your nose, it stinks. That's what God said about their pride. Uh, they thought it was, look at us, look at us, we got all the things we're better than everyone else. I'm greater. No one's smarter than we are because we have everything. Pride often causes us to swell, to get the big head, right? We start believing the own, our own hype about ourselves. We rise up above others. Another Hebrew word, all these words kind of are synonymous, so there's a lot of overlap here, but it means to be exalted or to be made high. Uh, listen to uh, Ezekiel's prophecy concerning the pride of the prince of Tyre. Uh, T-Y-R-E, not T-I-R-E. Not the one that you put on your car. But uh, Ezekiel chapter 28. Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God's, in the heart of the seas. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Now, a lot of scholars draw the, the parallel between this prince uh, and Lucifer being cast out of heaven because of his pride, because of the arrogance of his heart, because of him being puffed up. You read that a lot in the scriptures. Uh, this person who demands everyone else bow before my greatness. Uh, think of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. When you hear all these musical instruments, you must bow down before the greatness of my statue because I'm just that good. Uh, think of uh, Haman in the book of Esther. You know, the, the ladies just did a, a study on that, so maybe... Maybe you're very familiar with that, the, the smugness, the arrogance, the, the way he would pout when someone didn't bow down to him. Why? Because he was puffed up. He was lifted up. Uh, final Hebrew word uh, that I want to look at refers to how someone acts in a proud manner that can make them boil or seethe with anger. Uh, this is the pride that makes someone have a sense of self-importance, sounds familiar, which often is exaggerated 
to include defiance and even rebellion. Uh, this word is commonly used in the Old Testament to show how Israel, warning after warning, prophet after prophet, they continually to, uh, they continue to ignore God's word. They spurn God's word. Uh, when the, the children of Israel came out of the Babylonian captivity and they built the, the, rebuilt the temple, Nehemiah would read the law to them. Listen how the Levites prayed to God during that time when they rebuilt the tabernacle. This is a prayer to God. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they, and they stiffened their neck, and would not obey. So in, in our pride, we, we read God's word, and we see the commandments, and we look at it and say, I don't have to do that. Why should I obey that? I'm, my way's got to be better than what God's way is. Right? I mean, we, we may not say that out loud, but that's the pride that swells up in our heart. Um, so a, a, a description of pride. I've got a long definition. It's not on the slide, so I'll read it twice. Then I've got one that's a little shorter, a little simpler for me to wrap my brain around. But pride is a distorted view of self that seeks recognition or self-exaltation with a selfish desire for all things to be used for the service of self. Again, it's a distorted view of self that seeks recognition or self-exaltation with a selfish desire for all things to be used for the service of self. You say, Bobby, you had a lot of selfs in there. Because that's what pride is. Pride is selfish. Pride is all about the self. So, simpler definition, pride is self-worship. Proud, loud, pride, proud, start over, pride loudly proclaims, Look at me. And because pride is self-worship, we expect others to worship us as well. And we get angry when we're interrupted. Why? Because it's my time. It's all about me. We belittle those or scorn or, or mock those who disagree with us because why? I'm smarter than you are. I know the answers. Just listen to me. We get confrontational when, when our preferences are not met. Well, you know the air conditioner is supposed to be set on this. Why are you setting it on that? It's about me. It's not about what you want. It's about me. Why? Because it's me. Everyone, if, if everyone would just do what I wanted, if everyone would just do it my way, I would still be proudful, but it would be a lot easier for me, right? Because then I'm God. It's all about worshiping me. I'm God. There's no room for anyone else. 
And this is how pride is so deceptive. Uh, the point number two, the deceptiveness of pride. You're in Proverbs, so uh, turn back about one page to Proverbs 28, 26. Proverbs 28, 26 reads, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Now, full disclosure, this verse that I read doesn't have any of the root words that I mentioned for pride. But I think it does highlight what pride really is. Now, think back to our definition of pride. It's about self-worship. So when you worship self, what, who, who do you trust in? You trust in yourself, right? But this verse says that whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. The prideful person rarely, if ever, seeks guidance, seeks counsel, seeks wisdom from anyone else. They, they rarely trust in anyone else's opinions because no one's my equal. No one's good enough to tell me what to do. And this verse highlights that it's all about self. And this is the root of pride. You want to get down to where pride really starts at? It's, it's here it's self. It's unnatural trust in my own abilities, my own importance, my own opinions. And it's kind of what makes pride so deceptive because we're all good at certain things. Uh, some of us better at things than others. Um, all the elders know how great of a singing voice I don't have. I don't take pride in that. But there's certain things I can do better. That's why I'm not up here every Sunday leading and singing. There's certain things I can, I can do. I can do them well. But I shouldn't trust in those. But pride is so deceptive because it, it often sneaks up on you. Creeps in kind of slowly. To, to steal from C.S. Lewis's quote on the road to hell, indeed the safest road to pride is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You just slowly fall into that prideful mindset. Um, Jesus' parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, I, I think it really demonstrates and, and shows this very well. Here's the, uh, the Pharisee's prayer. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Did you notice with whom the, the Pharisee compared himself to? It was everyone he thought was inferior to him. Everyone he thought was a little bit lower on the social ladder than he was. And pride will always make you think and deceive you into believing that you're better, you're superior. Um, I, I doubt this level of pride happened in this Pharisee's heart overnight. I don't think he was just woke up one morning like, you know what? I'm going to be prideful today. I'm tired of being humble. I'm just going to be prideful. No, I think it, it crept up on him. And, and I say this because the, the religious leaders of the day, those who study the scriptures, those who 
knew all the Proverbs about pride, knew all of the examples about how pride destroys. They were the, some of the worst people to demonstrate pride. They, they never recognized that pride was just festering in their own hearts and killing them from the inside out. But on the flip side of that, we're, we're often prone to read this prayer and at the end of it and say, God, thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee. Right? We're not as bad as he and we're not smug. We're just smugger. Might not be a word. I didn't look that one up. Um, but why do we do that? Because we trust in ourselves. I don't have to trust in God because I've got it all figured out. Uh, the psalmist wrote that some trust in chariots, some in horses. I would add in most trust in themselves. Uh, Paul wrote in Galatians that if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's the deceptiveness of pride. It deceives you into thinking that you're really something when all that you have is a gift from God. So, so look back. T take a moment to just replay some of the pride that pops up in your own life. The pride that may say, you know what, that, that sin that I did, it's really not that big of a deal. No one got hurt. No one knows about it. So it's not that big of a deal. So in your pride, you continue to carry out Paul's warning in Romans 2.4 and you presume on the riches of God's kindness. You look at His grace that He's not struck you down at that first moment. You say, well, I got away with it. I'll keep on doing it. Believes, tricks you into thinking that all is well. I wonder in the months after David's sin with Bathsheba before he repented, I wonder how much of that deceptive nature of pride was in his own life. I got it covered up. Everyone thinks that I married Bathsheba and this kid's mine. No one really knows. Oh, my, my soldiers will keep it, they'll keep it quiet that I had Uriah killed. I've got it under control. How much of it pops up in our life? We begin to tell ourselves, all right, I'll just put it away. I'll keep it hidden. I'll never speak of it, speak of it again. No one knows it's here, do they? This creeps in slowly, tricks us, little by little, and soon we start placing less and less trust in God and more and more in our own selves. The Word of God that was once so sweet to dwell in and abide in and to meditate on, lays closed for most of the week. You come to church on Sunday and you spend 20 minutes trying to find where you left it last Sunday. Your prayer life that once was a joy, now it's a routine. It's just a formality. Checkbox, if it's even there. Why? Because that unrepentant pride makes you think that you're God. A Puritan Thomas Watson said that pride seeks to un-God God, you become the self-worshipper. You become 
the almighty ruler of the universe, and everyone revolves around me. But God has no rivals. God will not share his glory with anyone else. And all those who continue to walk in this state of pride, all those who refuse to repent, they'll all face the same end, which is our third point, the destruction of pride. Proverbs 16, 18, probably the most familiar proverb as it relates to pride, as it relates to uh, the destruction of pride. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, and a, a parallel passage in Proverbs 18, 12, the first part of it. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Now, the, the scriptures are full of examples of the destructive power of pride. Uh, you can read through history without even opening God's word and see just how pride is played out across our pages. Um, whether it's the, the ruler who thought they were better than everyone else or the athlete, I'm the greatest. Not really. There's always someone better. As a wise person said, there's always a bigger fish. But this pride, the end is always the same. It's destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before a fall. And I'll be honest, I, I've always read this verse and thought of it as a chronological term. Right? You've got pride precedes destruction, which is true. But not every destruction is the result of pride. So the most, th this Hebrew word is used over 2,100 times in Scripture. And the majority of them, it's not talking about chronological events. It's not me looking at my children and say, eat your broccoli before you have ice cream. Um, it's not saying, do this before that. The most common way that of, of these times it's used, the most common way it's used is to be in the presence of something or to turn your face towards someone. Uh, the Ten Commandments start out with, you shall have no other gods before me. Same word. It's not talking about chronological. It's not that Jehovah God is up here and everything else just kind of trickles down under him. No, it's God says, no gods anywhere in my presence. Well, where is God's presence? Everywhere. So God's saying, no one, no gods come before me. Another way of saying it is that this presence, uh, Psalm 1611 in your presence, is, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it's, it's coming before something. Uh, the, the, the priestly prayer of number six says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. A lot of times, and I, don't, I don't know how this got started, but uh, if I'm trying to talk to Karis and Logan, our two children, if I really want them to understand what I need to tell them, I'll simply say face to face, and they'll know to turn and look at me. Now, in my mind, at least they're, I think they're listening to what I'm telling them. You know, they might be thinking about other things, but in my mind, it's, I get the idea that they're hearing what I'm trying to tell them. It's, it's face to face. I want you to look at me. I remember when I was growing up, my, my dad, I got to, a, to the age where it was time for me to start doing more chores around the house during the summer, and one of those was mowing. Never mowed before, so dad taught me how to mow. Put your hand on the push mower, not self-propelled. No, no, it's work. Put your hand on the mower and look at something straight ahead of you and walk toward it. And I will have you know that on the very first time I did it exactly as daddy told me to do it until I got distracted. And I got to the other end of the yard and I looked back and my lines were not straight. I was not in the same direction that I took off from. In fact, if I was going this way, I ended up more over here probably because... I saw something on that side. And that's kind of how pride works. Pride causes you to turn your face toward yourself, but it ultimately leads to destruction. Pride will always tell you, you've got this, famous last words, I've got it under control. But all the while, it's leading you down this path that if you're honest with yourself, you know it's not going to end well. It can end well. It's going to go to destruction. Start in Genesis 3. Read all the way through Revelation chapter 20. Page after page. Story after story. Person after person who was just laid waste because of the pride in their life. And we look at it like, ah, I'm a little bit better than they are. I can handle this. Adam and Eve's sin, their, their, their pride, cost him the Garden of Eden. Saul's pride cost him his kingship that was given to David. Uh, Lucifer's pride he was cast out of heaven for it. And we could really look at a lot of these different examples of pride. But I want to turn to... Uh, Numbers chapter 16. I want to show one example of this destructive nature of pride. Numbers chapter 16. We're introduced to a man named Korah. Korah was a Levite. Uh, he was a descendant of Kohath. And if you go back to Numbers chapter 3... You read that it was the descendants of Koath who were responsible for making sure all of the instruments in the temple were carried from place to place. They were the ones who were responsible for setting up the altar, making sure the lampstand was in the right place. 
these were the descendants who would carry the Ark of the Covenant. The very place where God said, I will meet and dwell with my people. That was their responsibility. They would carry it into the tabernacle and they would make sure everything was in its proper place. This was a high honor. Not everyone could do that. If you remember when David was bringing the ark back to the, to the temple, they didn't have uh, the Levites carrying it. They didn't have the sons of Kohath carrying it. and It was on an ox cart. And Uzzah, maybe in his pride, I don't know, maybe he, he thought that the, the ground was too unholy for the holiness of God. And he put his hands out and he was struck dead. Then David went back and did it right. Very high honor. Not everyone could do this. But look at verse, verse number 2. This is just Korah. And they rose up. This is Korah and 250 men. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So Korah and these men, they come before Moses and they say, Moses, what you're doing, everybody in the, everybody in the camp can do because they're all holy. We can do what the priests do. We can, our job's just not good enough. So Moses tells Korah and these 250 men to offer a sacrifice of incense to the Lord on the next day. Notice he gives them a day to think about this. Go back and really think about what you're saying, Korah. Take time and reflect on what your job really is, what your what your pleasure to do in the tabernacle is. But here's Moses' words in verse number 8. Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand, near to, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? That's, that's pride. Is it too small a thing? Is, is that place that God's placed you, Korah, is it really not good enough? Korah is, is, is the position that the Almighty Creator, the Sovereign Lord of the universe, gave to you. And you, you think it's not good enough? Really? Really? God made a mistake when He gave you that. A Presbyterian pastor, Ligon Duncan, summed up Moses' conversation with Korah this way. Korah... You're prideful. You don't think that being a Levite is good enough for you. You want a higher rank. You're jealous. 
You're jealous of the role that God has given to you and to the priests. And that's what pride makes you believe. What you have is never good enough. I always need a better blank. I always need a bigger whatever. If I could just get that next big thing, I would be satisfied. It promises fulfillment. It promises lasting satisfaction. If I could only just get what I know I deserve, everything will be all right. But just as it did with Korah, unrepentant pride always leads to destruction. Skipping on down, verse number 29 or 28. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men, Korah the 250 chiefs, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Notice those last six words. These men have despised the Lord. That word despise means that the recipient, the person who has something, the recipient of a favorable disposition, you've got a good, you're in a good place, you're in a good spot, but they treat that favorable disposition with disdain. It ain't good enough. I deserve better. And Korah's prideful heart, he, he refused to see this high honor that God had given him. It was, I mean, caring for the tabernacle, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, setting up the mercy seat, putting the altar down that the sacrifices were made on. God, this is, this is piddly stuff compared to what I really could do. Just... Let me do it, God. I can do this. They had a day to think about that. They had a day to go back and let the Word of God just weigh on them. To let Moses' words from God just press in on them. But they still refused to repent. And as soon as Moses had finished speaking, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. And, and, and Korah's pride, he, he thought, if I can just demand this position, I'll get it. But just push myself hard enough, by golly, I can make this. Even though the warning was, the, the warning was unmistakable, but he looked at it, as I said, with God's word, I don't have to do that. I'm just going to ignore it because I know my way's better. 66 books. Thousands of years of history. 
And yet somehow we think, I can do it differently this time. I can figure it out this time. I remember hearing uh, one former pastor say that he uh, was praying and he was confessing a, a sin that, that he struggled with. And as he was confessing this sin, in the back of his mind, he was thinking, I bet if I did it this way, I could not get caught. Right? And that's what, that's what sin, sin and pride makes us do. I'll confess it this time, but I'll figure out a way to do it on the other side. Because I'm smart enough. We continue to ignore the warnings from God. We continue to read 1 John 2 and, and just look at it and ignore it. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. All of this, the lust, the pride, the sin, it's all going to pass away. But there is hope. That leads us to our final point, being delivered from pride. The deliverance from pride. Proverbs 3.34, if you turn back in God's word, Proverbs 3. 34, for those of you who may not know, it comes before Jeremiah, so I need to turn back as well. David, I need you to sing your song real quick. Proverbs 3, 34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Now, Proverbs is not a, a commonly quoted book in the New Testament. There's only... Uh, 11 Proverbs that are quoted in the New Testament, but this proverb is quoted twice, uh, pretty high up on the list. Um, once in James 4.6, the other in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Uh, both James and Peter say that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, now, neither of these authors simply say that God opposes the proud and then moves on. Uh, they, they give the command under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we should humble ourselves. We should submit ourselves before God. But, but what does that exactly mean? How does, how does one humble themselves? Uh, much like pride, I think humility is easier to recognize in others than it is ourselves. And that's kind of what makes pride, or humility rather, so... I don't want to use the word tricky, but I mean, you, you think about it. When you realize that you have humility, you really are prideful, right? You're prideful that you're humble. I remember a man in my home church praying one time, and, and I, everyone knew what he meant by it. No one thought he was boasting. But, but as he was praying, he said, God, thank you that you have made me humble. Now, there wasn't anything arrogant. In his, in his prayer, but he was just thankful that there wasn't something that was always stirring up to pr promote himself, is what he was getting at. But that, that's kind of how humility is. It's, it's a little harder to, to recognize in our lives, but it is easier to define than, than pride. 
Um, some have said that humility is not so much thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Just stop thinking so much about Bobby, and Bobby will be humble. I mean, I can think about Bobby none of the times and still be prideful. It's not so much about thinking less about myself or thinking about myself less. There's, there's got to be a little bit more to it than that. And in his book, Humility, C.J. Mahaney, uh, he gives this helpful definition. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and in our own sinfulness. We recognize that God is holy and we're not. And we're thankful for all that God has done for us. So, a definition of humility, but, but how can we become humble? I mean, what is, what is it to be humble? Is it constantly just belittling, belittling yourself? That's a hard word to say. Constantly putting yourself down? No, because that's an element of pride as well, this woe is me attitude. Because it's still focusing everything on yourself. I can't do any, I can't do anything. I just wish I could was, it's, you're still promoting yourself. You're just doing it from the opposite side of the elevation. The answer is simple. Maybe hard to put into practice, but the solution is simple. True deliverance from pride and true humility is found when we bow at the feet of Jesus and follow the example that he gave us. You see his humility on display in the upper room. Twelve apostles are arguing over who is the greatest. A constant theme if you read, read the Gospels. I mean, they were always, always trying to outdo one another and showing who was the greatest. I think that's part of the reason why the uh, ten of the disciples got mad at James and John when their mother came to him and said, we want them, Jesus, let, let my two children sit on your right hand and on your left. I, I don't think they were so upset that they asked that. I think they were more upset that they didn't ask it first. And I should have did not. I was thinking about that yesterday, and I should have asked him to sit on his right hand. But man, John, favorite teacher's pet, come on now. But they're arguing over this. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say a word. He gets up. He takes on the role of a servant. And he does the most menial task imaginable. He washes their feet. They weren't walking down Highway 70 on a sidewalk. They were walking on dusty roads, filthy roads, stinky roads because of what was laying in the roads. And Jesus just washes their feet. No fanfare. No spotlights. No look at me. But look at what I did. I served you. So follow my example. You, you, see, his, you see his humility on display in his call in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ said, look at me. Come to me. I'm not going to beat you up. I'm not going to be a jerk to you. I mean, we have that in in Ephesians 4, the call to forgive. Sometimes we, we, we fast forward and get to the be tenderhearted, and we skip over the first two words, be kind. But Jesus wasn't a jerk. He said, look, look at what I do. Come, come to me, I'm gentle and humble in heart. I think that's why as children, we often find so much security just sitting with mom and dad. Right? Because we know that Their heart is for our good. We crawl up in their lap and we just sit there. We don't need to be rocked. We don't need to be talked to. I say, Daddy, I just want to sit with you for a few minutes. Because I know you're good. And I know you care. But you see Christ's humility on full display at the cross. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. A well-known passage. Possibly this, this, these verses in Philippians could have been a song that the early church members sang as they gathered together to remember Christ. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse number 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Notice what Paul said there. He didn't say, in humility, think about yourself less. In humility, think less about yourself. But no, he said, humility count others more significant than yourself. True humility is a gentleman. No, you go first. No, I'll submit to your preference. No, I don't have to have my way this morning. I defer to you. Because you are more important than I am. True humility. Count others more significant than than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Do you desire for your life to be marked by joyful humility and not pride and arrogance, self-conceit, self-exaltation? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus and, and watch as he lays aside the worship of angels to be mocked and scorned and ridiculed by the crowd. Watch him as he takes off his crown of glory to have a crown of thorns placed on his head. Watch as our Lord, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you want to kill pride? Do you want to kill the sin that Charles Spurgeon called the worst malformation of all the monstrous things in creation and the firstborn son of hell? Probably could have led with that definition of pride and been a lot shorter than mine. Do you want to, do you want to kill that? Then look to Jesus Christ. Notice what, notice what the... The Apostle Paul said, he humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death. True humility can only be found in obedience to God. When, we, when, when I, as I said to a life group a few weeks ago, I don't want to throw y'all under my bus, but when I lay aside my selfish desires when I lay aside my self-centered goals, when I lay aside my preferences and my, you must serve me, and I submit to God's command, that's demonstrating true humility. Uh, the Greeks, they, they had no concept of humility. In, in fact, pride was something to be sought after. Uh, they, they, they had a word for the, the, the folly that comes from too much pride. They called it hubris. You, know, you, you start placing too much things, too much emphasis on your own desires, but they had no, no concept of humility. It wasn't a trait. It was, it was repulsive. It was beneath them. But we see Jesus, and we see true humility is found in how he became obedient as the writer of Hebrews said, as he learned obedience. The one who was the second person of the Trinity who was always in complete fellowship with the Father. Perfect union. He willingly submitted himself under the Father's will. As the song, Man of Sorrows says, bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. That's how you kill pride. You submit yourself under God's will, under His word, and you obey it. To know Christ is to obey Christ. Those who know God will be humble. And those who truly know themselves cannot be proud. Because we know, not good English, but we know we ain't nothing. All because of God. There's two choices. 
you have when it comes to pride. You can continue on your path. You can, you can think that, my, it's, it's going to turn out different this time. You know, the height of insanity. I've, I've done this for 46 years, not got it right yet, but I'm bound to get a hit sometime. So my time's coming. You can keep following that path. You can keep looking at pride and saying, I, I, it's not that big of a deal, and keep walking in unrepentance. Or you can look to Jesus Christ. You can see his example, and you can obey his word and know what true humility is. We can truly be humble by obeying his word. Why do we obey his word? We, we, we obey because we love. And we show that we love him by obeying his word. It just works back and forth. I love you, so I'll serve you. I serve you because I love you. I don't have to have my way because I love you. I love you, so I want your way to, to be had first. That's, that's really the two paths you have. You can walk in unrepentance and be destroyed. Or you can submit to God's word. You can serve Jesus joyfully, obey his word, serve others, and you will kill pride in your life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for the time that your word has been pressing in on my life as I've studied on pride. God, for revealing some of the ways it shows up in my life. Thank you for the grace to repent, seek forgiveness of that. Father, I pray for those this morning, those who are walking in their pride, walking in the deceitfulness of it toward a path of destruction. Father, there is grace. There is forgiveness found at the cross. So I pray that all of us this morning, we would look to Jesus Christ. We would see the example of his service, his love, his humility. And we would model that daily in our lives. Father, that we would seek to serve others, promote others, and love and honor and obey your words. This I ask in Christ's name. Amen.